You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. On race day, no matter how tough the conditions are, if the water's choppy and really rough or the swim gets canceled or whatever the conditions are, or it's hilly on the bike or it's hot or there's a really strong headwind or it's hot on the run or whatever the case may be, or it's, you know, and all these little different things that come in in terms of terrain and other things, whether you're mentally prepared for them or not, or you're thinking about it at the time, you just have to remind yourself that everyone is dealing with the same conditions. And if you're going for an age group placement or you're going for a qualifying spot, you have to push that much harder because if you give in at that point, you've already given up the spot. You've given up whatever your goal is because you've just given in to that particular thing, whatever that demand is at the time. And it's pushing past those things and reminding yourself, everyone's dealing with the headwind. If I just push a little bit harder and don't feel like I'm giving in, maybe I'm pushing harder than the next person that just gave in. That was Andrew Kelly. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning in to the new Marnie on the Move podcast series, Long Slow Distance. The series is fueled by several of my favorite brands. Mad Ritual, On, Roca, Noon Hydration, Salt Stick, and Navitas Organics. Long Slow Distance is a seasonal podcast series purely focused on endurance sports featuring athletes, coaches, and industry experts offering a deep dive into training, technique, racing, insight and advice, and of course, the mind-altering concept of Long Slow Distance also known as LSD. The series is inspired by my training for the 2019 TCS New York City Marathon, born from my decade of training for running and triathlon events, and paralleled with my love-hate relationship of doing long, slow distance and my desire to be fast. I decided to embrace the concept and make it fun. I will be conversing with runners, triathletes, swimmers, nutritionists, doctors, and more. If you listen to Marnie on the Move on the regular, you know I often get into the weeds with Marnie on the Move endurance athlete guests about their training and racing, so I thought I'd do a focus series on one of my favorite topics, long, slow distance. I'm excited to connect you with today's guest, Andrew Callie. Andrew has been a guest on the Marnie on the Move podcast twice, once in July and another at a live to headset panel we hosted at Chelsea Piers. He is one of New York City's top triathlon running strength and conditioning coaches, as well as an award-winning runner and triathlete. In 2019, he came in fourth in his age group at Nationals, second in his age group at the Ironman Augusta 70.3, which qualified him for Ironman World Championships, where he recently beat his all-time run-off-the-bike PR with a 118 time. Overall, Andrew has won at least 12 races in his career, including Mighty Hamptons, New York City Triathlon, South Beach Triathlon, Stamford Triathlon, Mighty Man Sprint, and more. He has qualified eight times for the ITU World Championships to represent Team USA, all of which he does as part of the Full Throttle Team, one of the most impressive triathlon teams in the Northeast, which he has been part of for the past 12 years as a coach and athlete. Andrew is a lifelong athlete, native New Yorker, and a new dad. And he's out there every day working hard, training, and racing. In his career, he has coached thousands of athletes for multi-sport and endurance sports, so he certainly knows a thing or two about the purpose and concept behind long, slow distance. On today's episode, I sync up with Andrew to get some training and race tips for both running and triathlon. Of course, we're talking about long, slow distance and why 
going long, slow distance in zone two is important for being able to go long, fast distance. We're talking about time versus miles and training language, learning to trust in your training, how to access your fifth slash winning gear, building a base, maintaining fitness in the off season, becoming a more efficient athlete and understanding your energy systems. We also talk strategy for triathlon running. We talk frequency and consistency for fitness maintenance, performance, and improvement. And of course, Andrew shares a few race day mantras and his winning mindset. You can connect with Andrew on his website, califitness.com, or follow him on Instagram at califitness. Now, on to the episode. As I mentioned, long slow distance is fueled by a few of my favorite brands, the ones that I use every day for training, racing, and life. I wanted to quickly share why these brands fuel me for success and some of the great deals they're offering to Marnie on the Move long slow distance listeners. Here we go. Mad Ritual has changed my recovery game in a big way. Get ready to recover like a rebel with these awesome, high-quality CBD-infused products. Their CBD balm is off the charts amazing, and I'm not the only one that thinks so. Mad Ritual has 100-plus five-star reviews. The balms have five simple organic ingredients, coconut oil, shea butter, olive oil, plant wax, CBD, and different blends of essential oils. Personally, I prefer the eucalyptus and peppermint. They also offer a terrific CBD-infused total recovery supplement. Not just for athletes, the products are formulated to ease all of the aches and pains that come along with being an active human. So if you're sore from life, Mad Ritual gets it. Founded by women, athletes, and active entrepreneurs, they are committed to helping active folks bring more balance to their lives. Mad Ritual is offering Marnie on the Move listeners 15% off. Head over to their website, madritual.com, use the code Marnie on the Move, and start shopping. Speaking of active, on running shoes offer runners the perfect mix of design and function. Running in on shoes is a game changing experience thanks to their proprietary cloud tech technology. You really do feel like you're running on clouds, whatever your shoe preference is. I have several pairs as I am logging lots of miles for the TCS New York City Marathon and switch out my sneakers often depending on the distance and the terrain. Side note, I do have a few pairs that I use for fashion and every day. If you want to learn more about On, you can go to their website, onrunning.com, or you can download the episode of Marnie on the Move with co-founder David Alleman. Now, if you're a triathlete, you probably have heard of Roka. I've been wearing Roka wetsuits for triathlon for the past five years, and they've been terrific for my swimming, speed, and comfortability. When I learned they were expanding beyond wetsuits and goggles and introducing eyewear, I immediately got a pair of their sunglasses, which I have been wearing for the past several months. No matter how hard I try, I can't shake them off my head, which is great since I'm always on the move. All Roka products are high-tech, performance-focused, with functional design. Behind the brand are founders and athletes designing products for athletes like themselves. Learn more on the podcast Marnie on the Move with Roka co-founder Kurt Spencer or shop their website roka.com and get 20% off with our code Marnie, M-A-R-N-I. Now, if you're an endurance athlete, you know how important it is to replace electrolytes and salt as you sweat for hours on end. 
Salt stick caps have been my go-to for training and racing for years. They reduce heat stress, muscle cramping, and maintain electrolyte levels. Salt stick also offers the only electrolyte capsules, liquid add-ins, and chewable tablets that were formulated to closely resemble the electrolyte profile lost during activity, which is sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium. Use the code MARNIE20 for a 20% discount at checkout when you visit shopsaltstick.com. Please note, this is only available to people with a U.S. mailing address and expires on December 31st, 2019. My other go-to fueling and hydration resource is Noon Hydration. I simply add their hydrating electrolyte tablets into my water and I'm good to go. It tastes great. There are lots of amazing flavors. I'm currently obsessed with their watermelon sport hydration and the blackberry vanilla rest. Noon began as the first company to separate electrolyte replacement from carbohydrates. The result, a healthy hydrating beverage without all of the extra sugar and additives. Noon hydration is hydrating the planet. One runner, surfer, cyclist, yogi, hula hooper at a time. And the list goes on. They have taken the brand beyond sports and endurance with immunity and vitamin tablets. They use clean ingredients, and suppliers backed by third-party certifications and are non-GMO, gluten-free, and vegan. I highly recommend you add their tablets to your water as you race and train, whatever endurance sport you're doing. Lastly, but most importantly, for recovery and for fueling, is Navitas Organics. I am obsessed with their plant-based superfood ingredients and have been adding them to my smoothies for nearly a decade. From there, All-in-one organic essential superfood blends with protein, greens, probiotics, and enzymes for post-workout or even just for breakfast. I also use their maca for adaptogens, camo camo for extra vitamin C, and cacao. They also have an incredible line of CBD-infused wellness shots, restore, calm, focus, and bliss, and delicious superfood lattes. Head over to their website and stock up Navitas Organics is offering 25% off for your first purchase with the code MOVE25 upon checkout. Head over to their website, NavitasOrganics.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a chance to sample and try some of these great products. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Marnie. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming back to record another podcast. Thanks for having me back. I'm so excited to have you here today on my new endurance sports focused series, Long Slow Distance. Before we get started, I wanted to hear what your thoughts were as you're prepping to go to Nice this weekend for Ironman World Championships. What do you think your time's going to be? It's hard to say. This bike is uh, very different from anything I've had a race with where basically you're going up for almost the first half and then you're coming down for the first half which is also a very technical descent. And there's really nothing in our New York area. That could train you for that? That could train you for that. So uh, I'm not really sure um, what to expect for a time. If I can go in the low four hours, that's what I'll, you know, that's what I'll shoot for. Um, For the whole race? For the whole race. Yeah, okay. Um, And then it'll really be, if I can break into the top 10 of the age group there, that would be amazing. Um, um, It's my first time doing the world championships for an Ironman race. Uh, I've gone to ITU World several times. uh, So I decided to change it up this year and do something a little different. Get on the Ironman track. There you go. It's a good track to be on. Yeah. I I like the half distance. You do. 
yeah, I'm starting to, I mean, I've never done a full Ironman, but I'm starting to sort of realize like what distances I like since I started training for the TCS New York City Marathon, which I'm now training for. But I thought you were, you had shifted, I guess, until maybe work and other things have gotten busier for you. But I thought you had shifted over like the half distance was the race that you prefer to do. It is now. Half Ironman is the Mm. distance that I like to do. I like the training. I like the distance. I like traveling for races. I had the opportunity to do the New York City Marathon. And I thought, you know, I would love to have done a marathon a year from now where I could. The thought process for me was I hadn't been really training for anything specific. And I was looking for something to do. And I was busy with work, so I couldn't really train at the level that I wanted to train for a half Ironman or a 70.3 Ironman. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like in this limbo space and I had just done a couple of races and I was, I'm doing Mighty Hamptons this weekend. Mm -hmm. It's an Olympic distance race, but I really haven't been seriously training. You know, it wasn't really something I had ever thought about doing just because I don't really want to do any one sport for more than four hours. (laughs) And... I know I'm a very slow runner and I, my running has like really, really slowed down in the last three, three years. And I think, you know, I've always done half, half marathons. It's like my sort of go-to workout to keep me in shape throughout the winter. And it's something I love to do, but I've never done a marathon. And I always, you know, I've worked with all these trainers and coaches and studios that, you know, are very experienced in training people for marathons. And I thought, you know, if I was ever going to do a marathon, I would want to do it in under four hours. And I know that that requires a ton of training. It's not like you can just roll out and do a marathon, number Mm -hmm. one, nor can you do it in under four hours without getting your volume up. And I've always been a triathlete. So, you know, I, you know, in this process, I started thinking about, you know, one of the things that was very frustrating as a runner and a triathlete was that I had gotten so much slower And this is all leading into the title and topic for today's podcast, Long Slow Distance, which is I've always loved running and I I love being fast. And for me, fast was an eight and a half minute mile. It's not fast for you, but it's like my my fast and that's cool and it feels good. I love like flying through the air and moving and even beating my pace. And, you know, I've done the mile distance in the city and I've been I don't remember my pace, but. Either way, my running got really slow when I started doing training for more endurance triathlon races and focusing on long, slow distance. And the zone two training, I think, you know, in retrospect, you know, now I can see where the value is since I've started training for the marathon and also a little bit when I was training for some of my races this summer for before in the spring. I started to see the value of the long, slow distance, but I had never seen it before. I've seen it on the bike, but not running. And so So now you're actually starting to see a change. So I'm starting to see, I'm not starting to see a change because I'm still really slow. I'm basically at ground zero. Running slower. Have you seen changes, improvements in your heart rate or even your easy pace being a little bit faster than it used to be or anything like that? I'm getting closer. That's Mm -hmm. what I think. I think that what I want to get your opinion as, Mm -hmm. first of all, you know, I know you don't put yourself in the elite athlete category, but you could. And also as one of the top coaches in the city and someone who's been coaching for over a decade and also thousands of athletes in your career. What is the 
value and importance of long, slow distance? Well, it could almost be simplified in that at the end of the day, doing what we do as triathletes or if we're talking about the marathon right now, it's an endurance event. So going longer and easier is the primary part of getting better at going longer, right? And being able to do it easy. So to run a marathon, you need to learn how to run long and slow before you can learn how to run long and fast. So the benefit of it is just, I mean, one, there's a lot of things. And it, and training for a marathon, if you're running five or six days a week, being able to run easier is also going to allow your body to adapt to those training miles and be able to rack up miles without also causing unnecessary fatigue and potential injury on the body, right? So if all your runs are in zone three or a little bit higher and you're training for a marathon and you're running four, five, six days a week, unless you're an anomaly, chances are you're probably gonna start to run into issues, either burnout, injury, or what have you. So learning how to run slower and easier is gonna allow you to, one, build up your volume safely on the body. It's also going to start to build your aerobic system and your aerobic base, which is important. Being able to train your aerobic system, which is a big part of it. You have a better aerobic base, and then you're able to start to push harder at your thresholds more comfortably. And those speed sessions, while they might feel hard, will start to feel easier pushing those. And you'll also be able to hold those paces longer when you start to do it. So whatever your threshold pace is, if your threshold pace was an eight minute mile or an 830 pace, eventually doing your speed work around there. And ideally, hopefully we that gets faster when you're focusing just on running, but by doing your easier aerobic runs, if it's truly aerobic and you're keeping that heart rate down, whatever that pace is, if it's an 11 minute mile or a 12 minute mile, and you're starting to comfortably be able to run there, keep your heart rate down, whatever it is, uh, and do that distance over time, you should start to feel that when you did your, your speed workouts, that doing those efforts start to become a little bit easier. And that when you start to do races, let's say you do a, a 10 K race, and in, and you know prep to tune up or something like that running that 830 or 815 should feel a little bit easier hard but comfortably uncomfortable and so Does that i think yeah that makes total sense and i think i don't know if sometimes you have to slow down to get faster i think that was one of the big lessons that i learned with doing zone 2 i mean for me it started when i was doing triathlon mm -hmm. and i had a coach that kind of said to me, how are you doing all these miles, whether it was on the bike or it was running at such a high heart rate, mm -hmm. you know, you need to pull back. Like we are starting you over from like ground zero for yeah. you to like start training. So a proper aerobic base. And actually I feel like this topic came up on the last time I was on the show, but a really good aerobic base is taken for granted by uh, a lot of athletes. And in that case, it's, well, you know, you, you're able to run whatever the distance was at the time. Let's just say it's 13 miles and you were doing it at a high heart rate. But where do you go from there? Chances are you go into a race and you're probably at a heart rate about the same and maybe even running slower. And like, where, where did you go? Where's, where, where did that training come into place? If you're always at a high heart rate. Right. You haven't trained the body to function anywhere efficiently at a lower pace. So when you go into a race and you need to work harder, where do you go? Right. You, you've, you know, you've only operated at this top end of your heart rate, right? And 
training yourself to work more aerobically is going to one start to tap into different energy systems of your body. Right. Right. And start to get you functioning differently, burning different sources of fuel. Right. And then if you can start to run easier over time, right. And sustain that pace or sustain a lower heart rate. And you will see your pace start to pick up. Ideally, obviously it takes frequency. It takes time. It might even take months or even a couple years to start to see these improvements of you working on it. But if you're running twice a week, probably not going to see it. Once you start to run four or five days a week and you're training for a marathon, you're going to see these changes. But ideally what you're going to start to see is you're running at a 140 heart rate and over a few weeks of training at that, that being your easy, and I'm just throwing that number out yeah. arbitrarily. No, but, but that, that is that my, being, 140 uh, is my zone too, but I yeah, think because you yeah. know my zones, yeah. but yes. So you're you running at that, uh, ideally over time, you should start to see your pace increase even though you haven't increased the heart rate. And that's a sign that you're becoming more efficient at running. Actually, I do think that I've seen that because the last three runs that I've done have been very different. Like I, I've done two 16 mile runs and one 18 and they're all the same time. So obviously the 18 was this weekend and mm-hmm. on Hills, the others were sort of Hills, but in they're like you were saying with Nice, mm-hmm. like there's no Hills mm-hmm. in New York city that are like the Hills anywhere else in the mm-hmm. world that are considered Hills. So I was upstate and have pretty big yeah. hills <laughs> and that's it you know and then, then that's another converse that's another conversation we could get into that a little bit where where hills starts to factor into you know training like this because obviously that starts to put a different demand on the body and keeping the heart rate lower versus running flat on the treadmill or something like that or right. if you live in an area where it's very flat and you can uh, you know stay in that zone but in general give or take within a range and you might have to sort of give yourself a few extra beats in hills or really hot days or things like that. But just in general, if you're training at that zone, you should start to see an improvement in pace even without changing your heart rate or increasing it over time. That's your, that's your feedback or your progress that you're getting more efficient at running. Now, do you have a good test that people can do for figuring out what their heart rate zones are? I mean, or is it, is it all built in on the Garmin? Like you just go out for a run? I mean, I mean, there's a few different ways. I mean, a good, it depends. Either I'll use Philip Maffetone, like 180 minus your age. That's an easy way to find like at least just your aerobic threshold. And then I work a few beats above that or below that. A 10K race is really great. Mm-hmm. If someone actually does a 10K race and they have heart rate data and pace data, then we could at least kind of get an idea of where the heart rate is and then do some percentages off of that. Um, to find out what their different zones are and we could work from there depending upon the athlete and then if you, you know if you're used to working off of max heart rate you can work in that same range and start to figure out those different zones but one of those is going to start to give you a range but in general like you know, for most people if you're doing your long runs and you're north of 160 heart rate that's not aerobic right <laughs> <laughs> no uh, that is not you want to start to be able to do that at a lower heart rate. Yeah. Whatever. Um, if it's 90 degrees out and you're running in hills, maybe it's going to be higher. It's going to be a little bit tougher to hold that heart rate down. And then, you know, there's the easy, but then there's also the days that you do your tempos or your speed work and they start to complement each other. So you need those easy days so that you feel good and you have that aerobic base so you can do the hard days and you have the endurance to do the hard days and do your speed intervals and do your tempos. And then you have those that are actually increasing your threshold and you should start to make 
those easy runs should start to become even easier. Right. And you should start to see that change on your easy runs as well. So again, it depends on where you are in the season, earlier in the season. Like more if we're talking about marathoning specifically. Yeah. 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 But if you're earlier in the season, if you were starting your training, you know, if you were thinking about the New York City Marathon, but it's January. Yeah. Mostly easy runs. You don't really need to be thinking about too much unless you're running multiple marathons. But you don't need to be thinking about too much speed work just yet. You know, you're just building up some volume. But most people are probably starting around July really thinking about right. their New York City marathon. But even then, like assuming you're working on some sort of five or six day plan, three of those days are going to be slow and easy. One or two of those days are going to be your speed work or your tempo work or your race pace work for the marathon. And that's kind of how you're going to shift it, you know. 75% of almost any endurance athlete's focus should be in zone two. 75%. At least. All if, the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no point of the season that you're not doing some sort of zone two work. So do you think that it's important, you know, people talk about the preseason or the off season. I mean, I kind of feel like you should... If like knowing the kind of athlete that you are, you should maintain a base, always maintain a base of like a certain volume, whether you're a marathoner or a triathlete, obviously triathlon's a little different because there's three different sports involved. But mm -hmm. again, like what's a good base if it's able to be answered because everybody's different, but like what's it? Okay. Let's just talk about like the marathon. Like what's a good base to keep like all year long. If maybe you're thinking about doing marathons in the fall. It's hard to say. That's a loaded question because okay. every athlete's a little bit different. But in general, I don't like athletes to fall too far off in general because building a base back up takes the most amount of time. Okay. Getting a little faster, building up your speed doesn't take as much time, especially if you're aerobically fit. So if people want to dial off the structure usually is what I have them do. And you know, when, when I'm coaching them is instead of, you know, there being very rigid intervals or a very focused structure. If you want to go take a class with, you know, whoever, or go run with a friend or go do whatever changes it up for you mm -hmm. that takes the, you know, the focus off it and make it feel like it's not training. You're just right. kind of going out and working out. But as long as there's some level of maintaining that base, and then eventually, usually after a couple of weeks of that, most people are ready to kind of get back into that routine. If you fall too far off of it, you start to take weeks off at a time. You're really, you're maybe working out once or twice a week. One, you're going to put on weight and two, you're going to lose that aerobic fitness huge. And then you spend most of, let's say it's January or wherever you are leading up to that event, like the, the beginning part of whatever that phase is, but let's just say the beginning of the year, because yeah. most people lose it in the holidays. And you spend the, the first three months trying to build your base back up. Right. And, and I think that's what happened to me is I fell off the training program in general. Like I kind of, I think I went too far off the training program and I didn't really have a focus and I let my base go and then I couldn't, I mean, I just like have been having a struggle getting it back, but I feel like it's coming back. I think it's an important point that, you know, people need to kind of keep, like it's not an off season, like you don't stop working out, like you don't stop training. So it depends on what kind of athlete you are, but since yes. we're talking about marathon, I would say you probably want to consistently have some sort of long run in that's anywhere between eight and 13 miles, depending upon what your mental capacity and motivation is at that time that you're calling an off season to maybe run the 13 miles. Maybe you don't want to go that far, but somewhere in that range that you're yeah. kind of doing that regularly, you're probably still, and if you're, 
if you're thinking marathons are your thing and you're planning on getting back into it, like in the not so far future or distant future, then you're probably still running at least three days a week. Yeah. So how does that factor into triathlon in the sense of like, how can you maintain a good base with running and also focus on training for triathlon or you kind of really have to switch gears? Again, it depends on what your strengths are. So if you're, you know, you're a really strong runner, maybe there's a little bit of wiggle room in terms of how much volume or training you need to do. And if you know yourself that well, same, whether you're a biker or or a swimmer, but just in general, the rule of specificity or the rule of like frequency is really key. So when athletes come to me and I think you asked earlier, like, what do they ask you? It's like, how do I get better? And at biking? How do I get better at swimming? How do I get better at running? At the end of the day, you have to start putting more time into those. And less than two, two or less, you're you're not making any forward progress. Like two times a week? Two times. Yeah. If you're doing either just twice a week, you're, you're really just maintaining. And so even like with the distance of a triathlon, like if you're doing an Olympic, if you're doing a 70.3 or you're doing a full... Obviously, those are all three very different distances, and so the training is very different. Mm-hmm. But if your goal is to improve times, let me, let's just make it very clear. Okay. If your goal is to get faster, yes, and improve your times, yes. If you're training less than four days a week, or you're doing four workouts or less, you're doing less than four workouts, less than four runs, less than four bikes, less than four swims. While you're gearing up for a major event, chances are you're not going to see the improvements that you like to. You can probably do it with three if one area is stronger. If you're a really strong biker or you're a pretty decent biker and you like to ride, you probably get away with three days. But in general, you have to start to go more than three if you really want to start to see p- speed changes. And then we start to talk about when I throw that out, it was like, I have kids, I have a job. I, I totally get it. But when people say, I'm not seeing the results I want to see, if you're running twice a week and you're only running, and unless you're coming from a a true running background, like you ran in high school and college, Mm -hmm. and even then, you're probably just maintaining something that's not even close to what you're capable of or what you used to run, but it's still faster than what most people can, so you're maybe happy because you're able to do it off the bike and so on and so on. But in general, that's that's what it takes. So three of each sport per week. At least. At least. Yeah, at least. And then training what you're best at, obviously, is probably, is that your philosophy? Training what you're best at or training what you're weakest at? Again, it depends on what your goals are. If right. you're, if you're you know, I have a few people that are, that have come to me that want to qualify for worlds, right? right? And then we have to look at, all right, well, where, where do they need to put in the work? Like where the, where do they have the, where do they have the most time to lose mm-hmm. and where do they have the most time to gain? And then, you know, if, if I feel like they have the potential to be a much stronger biker runner, then it really makes sense to put that much extra time into the swim. Then we should put it into the bike and run because right. you can gain more time there. If the swim is really lacking and it doesn't matter how fast that bikers run are, and then we really need to take a look at the swim and see if we can make some form and technique changes as well as to whatever workouts we're doing to try to make sure that we're closing the gap, right? Right. So it really just depends. But in general, you 
especially if we're now shifting to talking about triathlon because now we're yeah. talking about all three sports. But we're talking about all three sports and we're talking about shifting gears a little bit in terms of training for an Olympic or, or a half or a full. You know, you're probably, the longer you go, you're putting more effort into the bike and the run. Yeah. Because there's more time spent on the bike and the run. Well, at least there uh, should be. <laughs> exactly. If you're in the water for longer than you're on the bike. You're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. So anyway, yeah, in general, that's what I have found. And if you start to look at elite athletes and you start to look at what they're doing and you're, again, the, if, if the goal is to get faster and to see improvements in your time, you want to start to be working towards doing three to four to five sessions per sport per week. And I know that's a little bit tough. To, and again, if we're going back to zone two, that doesn't mean every session's a hard session. Right. Sometimes that's just 45 to 50 to 60 minutes of easy spin in your legs coming out of the swim or before you go out for a run or something like that. So some of them are very easy. Some of them are like a two or three mile, like little shakeout run off the bike or but off the swim. But all those miles count and it's the frequency and the consistency. Yeah. Because your body will respond to that that muscular response of those motor patterns of turning over the pedals of your stride. And it starts to become ingrained those motor patterns into your body of one doing it frequently and that motor pattern becoming very familiar Mm -hmm. and starting to become something that feels easy and very natural on the body. Right. So the more frequently you're doing them, the easier it starts to feel on the body. Okay. So, and it's better to have more time and play the long game of building your base and aerobic capacity than it is to try to like do it in like a three month short time period. Cause it's almost impossible. I, again, this is, this is an ideal world. I right. know right. there are the margin of people that have the time or the motivation or the mental capacity sort of think like this are not many, right. but if you're, you're asking about time, time commitment. And actually right now, I think training for a marathon, the why you've made that shift to, Running is the easiest thing to do because you you don't need a gym, really. And you can do it anywhere if you're traveling for work. So that's kind of cool. And then as far as getting your frequency up, if you're only focusing on one thing, it's very easy. But in general, there you go. And then you can get it up. And then once you start to add things like swimming, biking, then obviously they start to become a little bit more time consuming. And the bike being the biggest, you know, time suck because yeah. you know you have to get your bike ready, you have to go out, you know, and especially where we live, getting up to the bridge, getting over the bridge, getting back to the bridge, getting yeah. back over the bridge. There's just a lot of time added into that workout. And in general, because it's the longest time, you're putting in at a minimum four on hours, your long yeah. rides, three to four hours. Yeah. And if you're training for an Ironman, it's a lot longer than that. Yeah, because so, only one hour of that is actually riding, <laughs> cycling. <laughs> well, if, you, if you're going over the GW, yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> but in general, that's what it takes. That's what I've seen. And the athletes that are committed or have the time to do it and are putting in the time will see the improvements. That's just from what I've seen. The ones that are not seeing improvements are typically not putting in the time or don't have the time to put it in. And then you just have to have the hard conversation. And which is, I tell them point blank, if you're doing two or less, we're maintaining, barely maintaining. And some people that's fine. Like, you know, not everybody's doing a triathlon to win, but you know, like we're talking about, you can, you can turn up the volume or turn down the volume depending on what your goals are. I think you are a good example of someone who is doing both, you know, triathlon and running. And I like 
because you've, you know, obviously you're very focused on triathlon, but you also occasionally will do that. You've done the New York City Marathon twice. Mm -hmm. You've done a few half marathons. I've done several half marathons. (laughs) Um, I actually just decided to do the Philly Marathon this fall, November 24th. So I'll be doing another marathon. I'll do Boston coming this April. You qualified uh, last year, right? Last year with New York. Uh, So yeah, I've made the shift to to doing more running races like that or longer distance running races. And it's one of those things that's been an evolution of just my own training where that really didn't seem that appealing earlier on. I was very much just sprint or Olympic and over time, then there was like, all right, well, let's do a half. And now I'm definitely more interested in doing half distance. I still like the Olympic distance is definitely a sweet spot for me in terms of my ability but I do like the half distance and then half marathon and marathon have become a new passion in terms of just training for. And I think it's because of how much I've been enjoying the running these last few years. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm starting to see that from my running. I've always loved running. I've always been a runner. I think that's what I, before I started triathlon, I loved running. And I think that I'm starting to see, I've learned a lot from running about training for running and also for triathlon. I think it's an interesting combination and I like the way for me, like my focus of triathlon is usually I, I would like to be doing triathlons, you know, in the spring through summer, early fall, and then winter is a great time to do marathons. So, and that seems to be the way that you're doing it. For a triathlete that wants to get into running, would you recommend dividing your sort of races by season so that you can shift your training and focus? It, again, it, it really just depends on on the athlete. Sometimes right. I get people that are, you know, I have a few athletes right now that are just runners and we've just been focused on doing training plans for a particular marathon, whether it be Berlin, Philly, New York, any of those. And then I have other athletes that it becomes a sort of you know, just an additional race that we're adding onto the calendar right. with with a goal to put up a particular time or if it's if it that's if they've done a few marathons or with a particular goal, but they're adding it in addition to their other triathlons and other races they're doing throughout the year. Obviously, locally, just because of the nature, New York City ten, yeah. is always in November, the first weekend in November. So it always ends up being a fall race. But obviously, if you're doing something a little earlier, like Chicago, it'll be end of summer or something like that. But it, it depends on what your goals are. If you're training to qualify for Ironman 70.3 Worlds, you know, whether you're doing yeah. it at the end of this year for or if it was this year to get to Nice, you know, then your focus is going to be, you know, trying to do one or two races earlier on with the hopes of qualifying and then knowing that you still have another push to, you know, make it to September. Uh, so it just, it really just depends on what your goals are, what your thoughts are in terms of racing. And, and and a lot of this is, you know, a little bit more so based on working with athletes in the Northeast. If I'm talking to somebody who lives in Florida, who could race like every weekend in December uh, if they wanted to, it's, it's just a little different in terms of what our calendar is. And, and so just take climate into effect as well when you're putting together your plan. But so what do you do when you start to sort of move into the marathoning zone? I mean, do you drop your bikes or do you just keep them to spin out your legs? Like what's your, I think it's the latter. I, I mean, again, it's also sort of where your head's at sometimes right. it's kind of nice to then be able to go out and do you know the easy coffee ride with some friends so right. yeah, I might go out a little bit longer and still just kind of spin out my legs but I feel good and I feel like pushing maybe I push a little bit 
but you're typically stopping in the middle, maybe having a coffee and, right. and hanging out a, a little bit. It's more of a social cycle ride. Uh, and then during the week, I would say I, I personally, or, and I even encourage my athletes to really, you know, use the indoor trainer and just use it as a zone two mm-hmm. or even a zone one recovery, just spin out, just something to flush the legs, another way to still work that aerobic zone. And then we could always also pair that up with a easier or harder run, depending upon what we have worked into the plan. Right. But another way to hold on or maintain aerobic volume or to use it as a cross training aerobic day. And the same thing for the swim, you know, you get in, you know, it's very easy on the body. You can swim a few thousand yards and it's not really going to impact how your legs feel. Uh, So definitely keeping, especially if you're a triathlete, keeping that in so you're not giving up all the others, but definitely the focus shifts especially again if your goal is a time yeah and even if your goal is not a time but if your goal is to do the marathon you have to shift to shift to running yeah even if you are not even if you're just planning to finish you kind of still want to yeah i did drop i did kind of drop my bikes Uh, i don't have that much time so i've just been focusing on running and swimming yeah so listen you you know if we're just speaking just about you with what you have going on with work and the bike being the biggest time suck, and now you're focusing on the marathon, that makes sense. Yeah. So listen, every athlete's different. I take every case into everybody's case or, or situation, depending upon what their work is, what their, you know, whether they have kids, you know, what their travel schedule is, all those different things, what their mental capacity is for training more. Some athletes I know if, if it's too much, they're just not going to do all of it. And right. It's you over. Start it can to, be overwhelming. You know, so there is me, you know, there's what I know of what it will take. And then there's also just understanding what the athlete's needs are and the person's needs are. And then again, you know, if we have to have that hard conversation, then I might say, well, listen, this is what we've been doing. Right. This is what we need to do if we want that. And you need to ask yourself whether you're ready to put in the time to hit those goals. Yeah. And I mean, I think that speaking of training and working with different athletes, one of the things that I think is really interesting that you talk about is energy systems. What are the different energy systems that we should be training in and how that all works? So your body functions in terms of muscular contractions using a source of fuel called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And so it's readily available in the muscles, but we have three forms of fueling it. The PC, uh, so ATP, uh, PC, which is creatine uh, phosphate, which is your short burst of energy, like 15 seconds or less, right? And then you have your anaerobic glycolysis, And at that point, now you're using glycogen, right? Carbohydrates in the muscles to now form ATP and now use that. So that's a little bit longer. So that's when we start to work longer than 10 seconds, less than a couple of minutes, I would say maybe Mm -hmm. less than three minutes, right? But you're still working hard. And then after that, we start to go into your oxidative state. The first two phases we just talked about don't require oxygen, right? So then as we start to talk about the oxidative or that fat burning zone, which also then becomes also a little bit of a combination of both carbohydrates and fat. Right. What's, that's, that one takes the most amount of time mm-hmm. to do, and you're also doing it at a much lower intensity. So that starts to, the energy systems, that starts to tie into what we're talking about. So to become a more efficient athlete, you need to spend more time going slow so you can start to burn fat more efficiently because you have a lot more energy and fat than you do almost three times as more than you do in the carbohydrates. So if event either way, whether you're 
as an endurance athlete, you're using both fat and carbohydrates. Right. It's just how efficiently you use one over the other. And you need to train your body to yeah. do that. And then when you start to do your speed work sessions, you start to do your harder threshold sessions, you start to, you know, tap into those other energy systems. And you're, mm -hmm. no matter what you're doing, you're always using a combination of the three, depending upon they work fluidly the body never shuts one off or doesn't use one at all or whatever but everybody uses those systems it's just at what point in time uh, depending upon what you're doing and for how long your body will move between those different energy systems so that's where that breakdown of what you're doing in your training starts to make make a difference if you're always training hard you're never training that aerobic system, which is the biggest part of what we do as endurance athletes. Right. That's what makes the difference for you as an athlete. That is the essence of endurance. You need to become efficient at burning fuel and using fuel efficiently. And that's what makes your ability to start to go longer, harder, and become easier. Again, if you're, you really only train one way, you refuse to go slower because you, you know, you're kind of conditioned to think that the only way to go fast is to always push harder. You're really only training one system most of the time. Obviously, right. eventually you run out of that creatine phosphate or you're low on glycogen. Maybe you didn't eat that much that day or there's not much left in the muscles because you are going longer. So eventually we do have to start to tap into that fat, but you're still probably not as effective as most other athletes that have been training in this zone and now can use energy pretty effectively. And that's how professional athletes can do these 100, 150 mile weeks because they're not doing it hard. They're doing a variety of training and a variety of workouts and programs yeah. and 75% uh, of it is long, at, slow distance. At the least. At the least. Yeah, I would say 75, 25 is a pretty good breakdown. And again, it just depends on what you have time for, what you're training for, what your goals are. But in general, you're spending most of the time in zone two. What about power for running? What do you think about that? I, I have nothing against power for running. I just have not really committed to really experimenting with it. And that's maybe shame on me as a coach, but yeah. I just, I haven't really found a place for it just yet. I have a few athletes that use it and have, you know, a power meter and I don't really look into to the data that much, as much as I'm, I'm looking into pace and heart rate. Right. Uh, I feel like there is a stronger correlation between heart rate efficiency on the run right? Um, versus, you know, heart rate efficiency on the bike. Now, not that it, it's not as important and you don't want to see lower heart rates when we're doing certain efforts, but by the nature of biking, when, especially once you get outside and moving up and moving down and tailwind, headwind and all this other stuff, power is just a lot more reliable in terms of what the actual output is. If you have a tailwind and you're going slightly downhill and you're going 27 miles an hour and your heart rates, you know, 115, that's not really telling me much. But then if we have, you know, a power profile of what you're doing at that point in time, it starts to tell me a little bit more. So I've, I just find that there's a stronger correlation with, with heart rate on the run than there is power. But, you know, some athletes have used it and they played around with it a little bit. But I personally haven't really given it much thought. Mm -hmm. I'm curious um, to see. Maybe that's me being a little bit old school or, but anyway, that's my experience with okay. it. Okay. The other question I have is how come with, triathlon when you're like a coach gives you a workout and says go run for two hours like they don't give you miles but then with marathon training you're given miles not hours or do you do both it depends on the athlete because if you have two different athletes running 
you know, telling someone to go run 18 miles can be two very, very different times yeah. and paces, right? So yes. an elite athlete running 18 miles will be less than three hours. Someone who's a very average slow runner could mean that they're out there running for four, four and a half hours. So you want to take that into into consideration, consideration with, the athlete. with the athlete and also you know you know making those jumps so um, a lot of marathon blocks sometimes the volume jumps can be at what i consider sometimes a little aggressive so making those jumps especially if you're someone who's in let's just say like the 10 minute mile range you know adding another three to five miles right is another 30 minutes or you know 50 minutes right versus someone who runs a bit faster so just you want to that's why going by time, and I actually do time quite a bit depending upon the person for that reason, just because it's easier to control the volume and the intensity that way. And then also it starts to take the emphasis off of pace. Mm -hmm. So if you have to go out for a two hour run, it doesn't matter really how fast you run it because at the end of the day, two hours is two hours. So you're right. running an hour out and you're running an hour back or you're doing loops of the park until you hit your two hours. But at the end of the day, and sometimes when you put up a mileage, there's this like, all right, well, maybe you just want to get it done with quicker, but that's yeah. not necessarily the goal. Right. Um, so it takes the emphasis off of pace. So especially if you're talking about a heart rate zone or going easier or staying and staying in your aerobic pace, if we know that we can throw out the aerobic pace because we know that that will be easier for you in terms of heart rate, right. um, whatever the case may be. But if you're doing your easy run, time makes more sense. Yeah. Then we start to talk about, usually when I start to talk about interval work, then I don't talk about heart rate really at all. And then it starts to become a time or a distance and a pace for those intervals, depending upon what their threshold is or what their goal is for a particular event. That's interesting. And then, you know, with the bike, like just speaking about like what you look for when you're training someone, like what are the metrics that you're looking at to see how they're progressing or what their training is? You know, with the bike, we talk about lactate threshold, and that's one of the sort of metrics that you look at. I mean, I don't even know how. I, I once did the blood test at mm -hmm. Chelsea Piers to see the on the bike, but that doesn't apply to running, like your lactate threshold or... Well, no, because you're doing it on the bike. So you could do a lactate threshold for the run and right. we can see what that, what that pace is, you know, what's your, where you hit lactate threshold from the blood doing that test, but you would have to do it specific to running. Then it becomes just like if you took a marathon or put them on the bike because it's a different modality, they might not perform as well as you would think if it's an elite marathon or cause they're not used to pushing pedals and vice versa, maybe but people don't maybe really a pro cyclist can do okay on a treadmill and and you know taking a blood lactate test but again it's pretty specific so you can't really bring it over it's very specific so if you did on the bike then it's it especially if it's recent and current and all the other parameters like you were rested you you weren't coming off of a really hard training block and so on and so on then it could be useful for training and then there's a there are power profile tests there's the 20 minute yeah. test there's also you know doing a race sometimes race scenarios like are a the time best. trial yeah like a time trial are the best way to get you know, everyone's different. You know, some people can hammer out, you know, field tests or hard efforts like that and actually put up a good result. And a lot of people, no matter how many times I try to coach them through it or I'm there right by their side, they just don't test well. And then, you know, we kind of have to, you know, use data points from workouts because 
when they're going outside and they're not really thinking about trying to do a 20 minute best effort, they end up putting out some better efforts that we can use for pacing when it comes to race day or future intervals and and things like that. So everyone's just a little bit different when it comes to that stuff. I mean, the lactate threshold, the blood doesn't really lie. Right. Um, I got so mad about that once. (laughs) And it's an interesting test because, you know, especially if you're, you're not super fit, sometimes you, you hit that threshold point a lot quicker than you think you're ready to. And that's an interesting marker because that's, you know, your blood, your body's feedback of just telling you that's, that's it. You're there. And that can improve with time and training. Absolutely. So if you know what that is, then you know that that becomes your benchmark for training above and below, right? Yeah. So if somebody can do that test, they can do it. You guys do it at Chelsea Pierce, but you can do it anywhere. Yeah. I mean, if, I mean, some coaches do it. You can do it probably at most universities and in sort of some sort of physiology lab. Uh, at Chelsea Piers, we offer blood lactate testing as well as VO2 max testing. So if you, for some reason, feel like you have a mental block on doing some of those field tests, like a 20-minute test or a power profile, or even when you go to do a race, you know, looking at your power meter or whatever, you're not performing well. Right. It's, you know, it's an option. And it's not the end all be all, but it, right. it's it's if you're going to be focusing on training and doing intervals, it's nice to have an accurate number to train around so that come race day, at least for me, providing some sort of race pa- plan and sort of pacing strategy for an athlete, or even if you're you know doing this for yourself, you could start to have a general idea of what you're going to be able to hold or what you should be trying to hold for a particular distance on the bike or the run, depending upon what we we're talking about. Right. And then you were talking, you mentioned VO2 max. So what's VO2 max? So now we're starting. Now we're 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 straying away from zone two. We're straying far. <laughs> we're on the polar we're several, opposite we're, end of zone two. We're going two. several numbers up. Okay. So now VO2 max, we're starting to tap into you know zone five. Okay. So I don't know if you're ready for this. That might I'm be ready. I'm ready. No, no, totally uh, ready. <laughs> so anyway, it's just now you're starting to work into you know you got zones depending upon whose zone scale you're on. But if you're if you're working on a seven number scale, then we're talking about VO2 max being zone five. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to work above threshold, and now this is you know starting to get close to your maximal uptake of oxygen. Right. Right. That's what it is. And training in the zone, as we talked about in terms of different energy zones, doing your intervals and working above threshold is another way to improve your threshold. So if you're doing efforts at VO2 max or above VO2 max, so you're working at your anaerobic power or your neuromuscular power and you're doing repeat intervals at this, if you're if that's a block of training you're doing, that's one way to improve your threshold. Another way to do it is spending more time at threshold at a minimum of like eight to 10 minutes being what it would take of repeat intervals to improve your threshold. So whatever it is, if your threshold is 250 watts, then you would be need, you would need to be spending, you know, 10 plus minutes at a time at that threshold to start to see improvements over time. And so when do you bring that into your training typically? After a good base. You, this is not something you, you bring in earlier in the season. Most of the time, you kind of maybe already gotten a race or two under your belt. It also depends on the strength of an athlete because, listen, putting up a, a three or four by 10 minute at threshold, you really better be fit and mentally ready to sustain that because it's just a long time. Yeah. And that's where sometimes doing those above thresholds, I have other people that you put short, hard intervals up. That's their jam. 
Yeah. They just know it's two minutes and they just got to go really hard. And then they get another two minutes down and they can do that for a lot longer. And it's another way that we can build that strength. And then when you go outside, it's a little bit easier. But if you're on a trainer, some of those longer intervals, the 10s, the 15s, the 20s can be challenging. But later in the season, after a big base, three to four months, um, and then a few, you know, probably another two to three months of where you've gotten into some shorter intervals and intensity work before you start to get into something like that. Again, unless you're a seasoned athlete and you've, you've done those, you know what to expect, but later in the season. Later in the season. And then, so, you know, I'm getting all these numbers from Garmin from my watch and I see that my VO2 max goes like between 46 and 51 and I, I have mean, no idea what it means, but I'm like, I mean, okay, I don't know. I, awesome. I, re- <laughs> I really don't know what the data points are in terms yeah. of comparing that versus you going and then doing your VO2 max on the bike to see if that that's accurate at all. Yeah. I guess it's, it's probably it's not. like if you weigh in on the same scale every day, then, you know, at least if you always have the right data going in heart rate power and it's giving you some sort of baseline of improvement. So chances are if you're getting some sort of update, it's because your power mm-hmm. or your heart rate versus your effort and, and so on is improving for a particular distance or workout. You can use that metric. Is it Does that mean that that's actually, whether it is or lower or higher or spot on, what your VO2 max is? I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah. I, haven't really, I haven't really dove no. into that, but it's kind of nice to get those little updates. I actually got one on, on a bike ride the other day, but I don't <laughs> take it very seriously. Do you pretty much think about like go on feel also? Like you know, as an experienced athlete and someone who's going to Nice, this weekend to compete in world. I mean, sometimes I think sometimes you do need to go out and just, you know, not think so rigidly about a particular workout or the data. Sometimes they become a bit of a crutch. So yeah, I think that almost ties into like the power meter on the run. I was like, it was almost like one more thing that I didn't really feel like was necessary to incorporate into into the training, at least for myself personally. So I think, you know, sometimes going out without a watch or going out without the heart rate monitor is helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, It just depends on on who you are. And then even and even on some bike rides, especially like sometimes you just have to go out and ride Mm -hmm. and push where you feel like you're feeling good and ease up and and just ride. It can't always be Five on, two down, five on, two down. Sometimes you need to the, you know, give the mind a break and, and just you know, sort of push where you feel good. So I do think training by feel has a, has a benefit at certain points. But then there's also you know, hitting certain markers if you really want to push past certain thresholds or improve your threshold or get to certain levels. It's in. And some of that is going by feel and pushing hard for as long as you can sometimes on those training rides. Sometimes that's what you need versus broken up intervals. Speaking of mindset, you have a winning mindset. You have that additional gear that you can dial into or tap into that is why you place in your age group, why you win races and how you qualified to go to world and compete in this major triathlon in Nice this weekend. Where does that come from for you? Like, is it natural? Do you have to sometimes push yourself differently? I mean, I've competed in, in sports, you know, all growing up. So I think, you know, being competitive has always been there. But, you know, learning, especially now with particular to endurance sports, I think that winning mindset or that competitiveness like is, is, is trained 
pushing yourself to the limit, pushing yourself hard, pushing yourself through that threshold, pushing yourself through speed workouts, pushing yourself to reel in someone who's ahead of you. It, it takes practice. You know, the body's hardwired to protect itself. If you haven't been training to push yourself and kind of really push through those pain barriers, it's hard to do it in a race. It's hard to it's hard to hit those goals. It, you know, your body naturally is like, oh, danger, danger. You know, we're starting to feel some uncomfortableness. Things are burning. Muscles are breaking down. You know, we don't like this feeling. And your body kind of wants to slow down. And it takes practice of pushing through and starting to know, yeah, yeah, this hurts and this stings, but I can do this for a little bit longer. I'm going to do it for a lot longer. And then the next time I do it, I'm going to do it for longer than that. And I'm going to do it a little bit faster. So, and then the other thing that I work with athletes and I'm, I would not consider myself a, a specialist on mindset, but is it, I, and I think it's in all aspects of life, but I think you really cannot have any room for negativity when you're going into any particular event, whatever it is, whether you're going to win or whether you're just going to finish, but you want to feel good about finishing or you, you want to have a good day. Like there's no room for negativity. And once you start to feel that come in on a workout or as you're going into the event, the week of the event, or however often that happens for you, you need to squash those conversations. Um, and for some people, it's a lot tougher because those conversations come up a lot more frequently. You know, I can't do this. It's not going to go well. I, I don't feel tired today. I'm not going to hit those intervals. I don't think I could do this. Oh, no, it's raining. That's going to affect my pace. Oh, no, it's hot or it's windy. There's all these different things that start to creep in to start to put doubt. And you really have to smother those conversations and shift that to I've been training really hard and I've been putting in the work and you know what I've been set on this goal and I've been eating well and you know I've you know the previous several workouts I've hit those benchmarks and I know I can do this just whatever it takes to shift that conversation and if you don't that's another thing that takes practice but if you don't start to do that and you're always letting negative thoughts in you're, you're kind of destined to fail yeah you, you know, have to start that in your training and every, with every workout and everyone's everyone's different some people do a much better job of this or have a much more positive outlook on things and i and probably it's starts to stem into other areas of life as well mm -hmm. but in general if you can keep a positive outlook and and really try to keep that conversation positive obviously you can't just positively talk your way into doing something without <laughs> training for it, but it could help. You probably will still feel good about the event. But in general, if you're training well and you're keeping that outlook positive, you're probably going to have a pretty favorable result if you've been training for whatever your goals are. And, and it's a big part of it. The mindset is huge. I mean, some people really can shock or impress a lot of people when you think like well they're like well they haven't been doing that much or they don't you know whenever I'm training with them they they I'm, I'm always crushing them in workouts or whatever whatever and then on race day some people just perform because when the day comes they've just have a competitive mindset they know how to turn that gear on they know how to push themselves hard and the person that maybe was a little bit more trained but probably has a lot of self-doubt is underperforming mm-hmm is there something that for you is like a trigger to get you into that gear? Like, is there something you tell yourself or is there something you think about like a mantra? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if there's a particular ma You're mantra. You're like, Marnie, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. I mean, some people do have mantras, you know, sometimes yeah. I think, 
faster, better, stronger, you know, things like that. But for me, it's just, you know, I trust in the training I'm doing. And that's sort of where what really fuels my confidence. Mm -hmm. And I train, I, you know, I try to train myself and, and the athletes I coach, you know, as wisely as possible. So for me personally, I trust in the training and that that sort of kind of fuels me. And if there's ever doubt, it's because I feel like I maybe have undertrained or mm -hmm. haven't put in the time that I have in the past. And I typically know that because I know what I've done in the past to do well. And if I haven't done that before a particular event, you know, that's where doubt will you know creep in for me. I mean, I don't really have a mantra, but sometimes I, I have to give mantras to athletes. So some of them is like, you know, harder, faster, stronger, light and low. And the, you know, the, I gave this to an athlete the other day that said they wanted to qualify for, you know, worlds in, you know, half Ironman worlds next year in New Zealand. And I said, you know, one of the things that I always tell athletes is that on race day, no matter how tough the conditions are, and this one is always helpful. And I think about it all the time, no matter how tough the conditions are, if the water's choppy, and then we could apply this to just a marathon. But if the water's choppy and really rough or the swim gets canceled or whatever the conditions are, or it's hilly on the bike or it's hot or there's a really strong headwind or it's hot on the run or whatever the case may be, or it's, you know, and all these little different things that come in in terms of terrain and other things, whether you're mentally prepared for them or not, or you're thinking about it at the time, you just have to remind yourself that everyone is dealing with the same conditions. And if you're going for an age group placement or you're going for a qualifying spot, you have to push that much harder because if you give in at that point, you've already given up the spot. That's awesome. Given awesome up, advice. Uh, you've given up whatever your goal is because you've just given in to that particular thing, whatever that demand is at the time. And it's pushing past those things and reminding yourself, everyone's dealing with the headwind. If I just push a little bit harder and don't feel like I'm giving in, maybe I'm pushing harder than the next person that just gave in. So things like that, I feel can be really helpful. Well, that is awesome. And you're having a great race year. And especially because additionally, you just had a baby. I have dad strength now. You have, you have dad I, strength. I, I mean, have, talk about people in. not, you know, you're, you're now, you're like a role model, right? For dads, because you're, you know, living the life, you're running, you're competing, you're racing and you yeah, also so I have a get five no month, sleep. <laughs> I have a five month old baby named Jackson. He's a, uh, he's a rock star. It's been the most wonderful change in really the most surprising way. I, I really had no idea how to expect how things went. I also have a super loving and supportive wife. Right. Not to who's mention, also a triathlete. Who's also a triathlete, but you know, gives me the freedom to train. I also obviously have the luxury of, you know, being in fitness and that allows me the time and the flexibility to work things in. But I had no idea, you know, I started off very minimal in terms of, you know, some of my commitments to racing really right. being going to Nice coming up this weekend and that I was going to do another half Ironman. And, you know, now I've, you know, I did indoor marathon relay. I did, I did 70.3 Virginia. I did the Brooklyn half. I was going to do New York, but it got canceled. I did the Pack Riscus sprint, you know, I've, and now I've been able to do several races. I went to nationals in Cleveland. So I've added a few other things and, you know, I just feel really fit. And I also just feel really blessed that I have a healthy baby and a really supportive family and that I've able to hang on to, you know, be able to do the things I love. And it feels like the best of all worlds. Right? Awesome. I have a beautiful yeah. family and I'm able to do the things that I love and we do it together and we go for runs in the park and I push the stroller and you do. Uh, <laughs> and uh, 
you know, there's a little, you know, there's gratification every time yeah. you pass somebody with a stroller. Yeah. You know, anyway, <laughs> I get passed a, by strollers all the time. It's, um, <laughs> it's good. Long it's all, distance. it's all, it's yeah. all, it's all been good and it can be done obviously. Yeah. So people can uh, find you at califitness.com mm-hmm. and also on Instagram. <laughs> also on Instagram, Cali fitness. It's been a pleasure, uh, being brought back again. I hope it's not the last time. No, I think we should crowdsource some questions and do like a seasonal podcast. Maybe we could do a follow-up to this. Yeah. All right. Cool. After you get back. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram, and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com, for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download, to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, MarnieOnTheMove1 at gmail.com. And let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out.